Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll-Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence ours and theirs. Roger Bennett taught me two things this week. One is that I should use my hands in conversation with him. So I'm going to be doing that while I do this introduction. And two is that the introduction is extraordinarily important when teeing up a guest. But Roger Bennett is married to my co-host Vanessa. And so I am going to read exactly what she wrote so I don't get in the middle of anything. But I'm going to read it with hands. Roger is a number one New York Times bestselling author of Reborn in the USA, a book about growing up in Liverpool and falling in love with America as a teen. He is co-host of the popular podcast and NBC sports show Men in Blazers, And as I noted, he is also married to Vanessa, who is sitting right next to me. Hi, babe. Hello, gorgeous. (laughs) This is the first time we've ever sat down with microphones in front of us. It's true. We we should always sit down with microphones. I know it might be like a great aspect to our marriage if we just sat down with headphones and microphones. There's only one way of finding out. (laughs) (laughs) Settle in, people. Here we go. (laughs) Roger... I will tell you that I am in the middle of Reborn in the USA. It is really a phenomenal telling of your story. It's hard to put down. 
except if you really need to go to sleep, which has been my experience the past couple of nights. Uh, It's fabulous. Now, as you describe in the book, you consider yourself an American trapped in the body of an Englishman, a Liverpudlian in the 70s and 80s. Can you describe a little bit uh, the experience of being a teenager in England in general and specifically in Liverpool? It's a magical city. Um, but back then in the 1980s, it was a dark time for the north of England. You know, the, the coal mines had shut down in Newcastle, the steel mills in Sheffield, the cotton mills in Manchester. And Liverpool had been the great port city when England had an empire where everything came in and came out. And the city was one of the, the richest ports in the world in its heyday, but we grew up so far from its heyday. It felt when I was growing up there with unemployment, about 20%, there was a heroin epidemic that swept the city. And it felt like if you could stand on a street corner and stare at the buildings, you could see the city deteriorating before your own eyes. And so in dark situations, you know, Billy Elliot had ballet dancing. If you've seen that movie, it was very much kind of the, the north in decay that I grew up in. And he had arabesques. He, he had all kinds of secret skills that I didn't have. And so like many... Uh, young individuals in times like that created an imaginary world, almost an escape. And mine happened to be the United States of America, a land I'd never been to, but came to me in the form of television, music, books, the sports that were broadcast, you know, Heart to Heart, The Love Boat, Miami Vice, Fantasy Island, the John Hughes movies, the music of Run DMC, Tracy Chapman. And I used them to build a different world to the one that I lived in, a world that was filled with hope and possibility and just almost seemed to be lived in color, whereas mine was lived in black and white. And you had that dream, not in isolation, but your, you and your grandfather very much shared that same love. And so it seems like intergenerationally, it was just reinforced for you. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. I was very close to my grandfather, Sam. Uh, we named our first son, Samson, after him. So he was deeply connected, but was different enough and didn't feel like he had to replicate the past, which he's not done. And <laughs> I, the, the odd part of it is I was very close to him and his dad was the one that left Eastern Europe And the myth of the family is he was headed as a kosher butcher to Chicago, the hog capital of the world, and that he saw the one tall building in the Liverpool skyline when the boat stopped to refuel, pointed at it and was like, I'm here, we're in New York, everybody off, which everybody didn't get off. I imagine all the other kosher butchers were like, yeah, 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 you're in New York, go on off your toddle. (laughs) And so we ended up in the almost marooned in the north of England, a few worse places really in the world to be a kosher butcher. And I was very close. My, my grandfather, Sam, kept the business going. Um, you know, I grew up watching him. Gen- literally, I write about this in the, in the first chapter, Fist. Um, I don't, still don't understand to this day how that tells you whether the cow is good meat or bad meat, but he'd like genuinely stick his fist right at the, the cow's anus and he'd go to his assistant. He'd be like, that's a good cow. That's a good cow, that is. Yes, yes. And I was very close to him. And he'd talk. He was obsessed with America. He'd fly over here when you had to like take a tiny jet, land it in Iceland and then land it in Greenland, then land it off Canada to refuel. And he'd come, go to Miami, go to New York, go to Chicago, go to Vegas, come back with tales, magical tales, all these tchotchkes. And when he was particularly pissed off with Liverpool, he'd take, and I now have it on my desk, he'd take this cheap plastic Statue of Liberty off his fireplace and he'd lift it up and he'd go, Rodge, 
we should have lived there. We should have lived there. So it's always kind of flowed in my veins. And a weird part of this is that I'm mostly the, the, the gentleman in my life that I'm mostly close with. Most of them are also super close with their, their grandparents. It's like an incredible formative relationship. And uh, it was definitely that way for me. I'm Michelle Kwan. In 1996, the world was in the midst of a massive cultural movement that saw women finally taking center stage. Nowhere was this shift more apparent than at the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. This audience was the loudest thing I have ever heard in my life. The noise, everybody's cheering, and we see all these USA flags. It was the most important summer in women's sports history, and team after team after team, the U.S. women kept winning. Basketball, soccer, softball, gymnastics. I just said, give me mine, like, give me mine. Join me for Dear Media's Summer of Gold, presented by Together. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So you were an adolescent in a city where you felt other because you didn't feel like you belonged in the place you lived. And then adolescence itself, the definition of adolescence in some ways is feeling other than everyone else. And I want to read a quote from the book specifically about what it felt like to go through puberty in Liverpool in the 1980s. And you say... It was a cruel empire now populated by two distinct classes, boys who had, quote, been through the changes (laughs) and those of us who had not. It was easy to tell the difference. You refer to the group of boys who had not yet gone through the changes, a.k.a. puberty, and I want to get back to that and ask you if you ever heard the word puberty during your own experiences of puberty. You refer to that group as the eunuchs, But as you say in the book, membership as a unit (laughs) was not a permanent state. And it was, quote, bewildering to see one fellow eunuch after another break ranks and transform into men. So for those who don't speak Roger E's as fluently as I do, essentially you were a late bloomer and not just a late bloomer, possibly the latest of the late bloomers or in the sort of lower 10th percentile, if that's, would that be an accurate um, characterization? I can name three people who are later than me. You know exactly who they were. Yeah, I know exactly who they are. I hope they're listening. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to ask you to name them because I know you totally, you totally would. So there you are. You're marooned on an island where you don't feel like you belong. Then you're marooned in a school where slowly everyone else moves to the better island, right? With the Mai Tais and the sunshine, you're still left on the island with the eunuchs. What does that feel like? What did it feel like to sit there in the locker room on the side bench and watch boy after boy abandon you as you stayed on the eunuch bench? Felt awesome. (laughs) 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 I mean, you should... should the school, so there, there was, it was like being a triple out to be Jewish in a heavily Catholic city was an outsider to be, to be, so essentially my dad was a judge. So we were middle class in a very working class city, a proudly working, fantastically working class city. When we were double outsiders and the fact that we went to this school, the last bastion of like colonial Englishness in a city that had long given up on all of that crap. 
Liverpool College. I mean, that made us triple outsiders. It was a ridiculous school. It was like Grey Gardens. We're inside the teachers, most of whom have been teaching since like genuinely for the First World War, uh, still believed that England had an empire and that children should be seen and not heard. And so it's important context to know that uh, and I think American readers are quite appalled and fascinated by it but all the english uh interviews have done uh, um with the beatings like we were we were beaten all day all the time it was totally it was it was normal to be savagely beaten by a teacher and you'd come home bleeding and your parents would be like oh you're naughty today so <laughs> my parents are aghast they read it and they were like Oh my God, poor Roger! So you just, you, you just be mean when you can. You think, oh, son, be you naughty again? What did you, did you do? And you'd be like, so you'd have like lashes all over your uh, all over your butt cheeks. But um, so that um, that's context for this. So that it was a fairly severe place already. So it was an austere place. It was a severe place. It was a place that believed, as I do, in sports for kids. But it believed in sports for kids in a slightly demonic fashion. Um, which had kind of detail, and we played sports a lot, and it was it was a massive nightmare. That um, to answer your question, it was something. Even when I wasn't playing sports, I was thinking about playing sports with dread, and a lot of the dread about playing sports was the changing. I mean, not just the changing. We'd you'd have to get, and the teachers patrol. You had to get totally naked for reasons. <laughs> Another thing Americans are fascinated by is like the teachers made sure you were properly naked. Like they, you couldn't wear your underpants under your game shorts. Nope, they had to go off. And they'd check in. They'd, you'd have to show them like on, when you walked out. They'd show me. And you'd have to like show them you weren't. It was a terrible sin to wear underpants with your sports shorts. So it was, it was all the trauma was the changing rooms, which were just a Lord of the Flies savage place. Um, which I think are depicted with a with a certain horror and a certain hilarity, but the sports also was terrifying. It was a very wonderfully physical game that we played rugby. We didn't play. Everyone wanted to play soccer, football. That was the sport everybody wanted to play. Not at our school. That was for you. Played rugby with no underwear. We played rugby. Yes, rugby <laughs> with no underwear. And the freezing, like the, it would be raining horizontally, and you'd just be standing out there, basically, like, why? Why are we doing this? What is going on? You know, your nipples felt so like frozen that they could just crack off if they were hit wrong. And it was all, and, and also the rugby was a place where if you had gone through puberty, you could you could destroy other kids and just let out everything that was repressed in school. There's a lot of repression. England, if repression was a Olympic event, would I think we'd be like ping pong to the Chinese. We were gold medal Olympics after Olympics, and we, a lot of that repression came out in rugby. The teachers encouraged it. You know, they only were annoyed at kids if they missed an opportunity to maim another kid, to lay one on another kid, to to. And so, if you'd gone to puberty, you had the ability to do that, and if you hadn't, you were more the target. So the whole thing was um, <laughs> it was it was hilarious trauma and to go through it to answer your question it was something that i thought about the whole time and that the thing about the eunuchs really was that we were all in it together and to begin with you were like in the majority and there was just a couple of kids walking around with the towels around their necks and just like wow what is that and then suddenly, <laughs> and by that you mean just a huge huge knob <laughs> just a monster cock just like and they'd walk around tell her on the net and, they'd be like, and the teacher would be like hello there Kay goat cock they'd announce it teachers would love it they high five you're with us now 
And we had a teacher who just announced the status of everybody. I mean, I write about it in the book. Um, I have that quote right here. You know, you go in the shower and you just hear him be like, oh, nice little bit of fluff. Nice bit of fluff there. And, uh, and then I'd walk past and he'd go, Bennett, Hitler's deformed micro penis, but very loud. That's a pedagogical choice there that I hope is not being repeated in current years. Can you imagine? I, I mean, so you, you have this, this announcer situation going on <laughs> before <laughs> and after <laughs> rugby with no underwear. Yep. But did you have health education? Did you have sex ed? Were there books around? Did you know you're a very bright guy? I think you could probably infer you were going to switch teams at some point and... Welcome. Took a lot, into... it took, took a lot longer though than it um, than was comfortable, and it wasn't like I was in the middle. I mean, I was a, I was here. I should add as a detail that I didn't really make clear in the book that I was moved up a year, so everybody was at least twelve months older than me. So, so screwed. So like early on, they were like, "Oh, he's a poet, little one. He likes the poems. Let's move him up." <laughs> So I did get moved up when I was five, six, uh, like too early to really know what the hell it was. But what it meant was that most kids were at least 12 months older than me. So it wasn't just that I was a late bloomer. I was just like, it was like a Doogie Howser situation. Well, I mean, you know, the Doogie Howser reference is exactly right. And it has driven a whole generation of parents to choose to redshirt their kids and and make sure their kids will not be physically the last just by chronological age to the point where now... In any given grade in the U.S., you could have a swing of about 18, 19 months between the youngest kid and the oldest kid, and everyone's sort of um, sees the the bright side of having the older kids for a lot of the reasons you described. And there are a lot of scientists who are starting to look at who's better off because, you know, in, in America, everyone's competitive parenting to a certain degree, which is very unhealthy. And I hope our generation starts to wash that off. But, um, you know, is it better to hold them back? Is it better to push them forward? And I think the data is pretty clear that there's no better, right? But what you're describing is something that has driven a lot of parents to make a decision to keep their kids home for an extra year before sending them to school. What's the data on school beatings being a good thing? Oh, yeah, that data is clear. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. No lashings, lashings are definitely a negative. Although my brother, my older brother, who, you know, grew up here in L.A., did come home um, many days having been whacked by the ruler. And so um, it was an international phenomenon in the early 70s. Yeah, there was a good part of all of this. Like it did, you had to survive. You had to adapt to survive. And I think that uh, when I look back to my personality formation, there's a couple of traits that come out of it. And one is I, I became quite mouthy quite quick, you know, to survive. You could either just give in completely and just try and push through school, which I didn't. Um, I did, you know, I had a great sense of humor. I was mouthy. I was, uh, I was, you know, in class, I was always, you know, um, I was quite vocal. With the teachers, I was I and I, I knew enough how to push their buttons without just being a complete and utter disruptor and the and the threat. But I feel like a lot of who I am as a human being actually comes from that moment. Like I didn't have that physicality, I didn't have that body, and I always had to rely on my mouth. And, and was that a success from. strategy then with with the other kids? Yes, but. Even in school, was that a success strategy for you? Or was it more a success strategy with your peer group? And then as you've gotten older, it's become more and more 
I'm not. I'm, I'm a human being that's not very comfortable with the word success. So. <laughs> Sorry, Cara, I for, forgot to mention success is an unattainable goal that will curse him. Still blessed with 97% self-loathing. As an Englishman and a Jewish person, I get a double dose. Yes. So success is not how I think about it. Are you asking me, was it intentional or was it? No. Because it, it wasn't. It just like naturally, it's just who I was. I was small. Everyone was, there's pictures yeah. of me going out to pubs and clubs when I was 15, 16. And it looked like I was going out with five dads. He wore his, he wore his bar mitzvah suit out in high school. Can you imagine? It's amazing. With a sleeve rolled up, though, like Don Johnson. Three, I think it was a three-piece suit, actually. It was yeah. a three-piece suit, Yeah, right? I ditched the, I, the, the waistcoat was a bit much. But I did, Don, Miami Vice had come out. Don Johnson looked cool. I got my mum to buy me a pair of linen pants. Linen, very practical in Miami. Less practical in the middle of the winter in Liverpool. I could, I, I, a bus drove past me. Splash me the first time I wore them and I couldn't get the stains out ever, but I still wore them, the mud stains. So I had them at the pleated linen pants and I didn't need the jacket. The only jacket I had was my bar mitzvah suit and I uh, wore it with the sleeves rolled up like he would if he was going on the drugs burst outside of Miami. And um, I wore them with a pair of women's espadrilles that I purchased myself <laughs> in my pocket for money. Our, I look fine. American audience, those are espadrilles. Uh-huh. Roger has its own pronunciation keep, of espadrilles. I keep imagining the opening sequence of Sex in the City where she gets splashed by the bus, but you're in white linen pants and a blazer with the arms rolled up. Yeah, we're very similar. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors ready-to-eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never-frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. 
But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. (laughs) So no, my question for you is really... um, You know, being a late bloomer is many people are able to look back and credit certain personality traits that have taken them to good places in their life from that, that root sort of survival mentality. And, and so what you're describing, the, the small club of the last two and a half or 3% of kids to develop, and it's a hard club to be a member of. That club, that's a unifying theme in that club. And so what I'm wondering is, as you became Maudhi and as you developed this personality, was it always helpful to you with, you know, the structure around you, with the adults around you? Or was it more that you wanted to get through to the peers and to the other kids? Because that's so much the push and pull of puberty is you're supposed to please the adults, but really by 12, all you care about is what your peer group thinks. Yeah, right? the, the English adults, I think, are different than American adults. It was the, I, mean, I love my parents hugely, and I share a lot of uh, commonalities uh, with both of them. But um, parenting was a bit different uh, back in those days, and it wasn't, it, we didn't engage on any of this stuff. You know, I do, I, as a parent, I think communication and communicating with the kids is the most important thing. We're very lucky. I don't think it's something you can command, but our oldest kid from the very beginning was very, very verbal and really loved to articulate feelings. And I know him and he's very verbal. It's amazing. <laughs> he's, um, but you can't, by the way, you can't, I don't think you can, I think part of that's nature and part of that is, and we're very lucky that Samson is 
so remarkably articulate and that that communication is now you know parent the fact that parents keep talking to their kids there's a line in the book you know with my dad who um I, I mean, we, we didn't talk about the about anything you asked me earlier like what resources did they have we did have sex education which was taught twice it was taught first by a teacher um who had suffered a horrific a uh, second world war injury when he had been in a foxhole and a, a german grenade came in this is an awful story a german grenade came in and he had an awful minute uh, to think what am i going to do How, what should i react to and he had all of his friends and so he took off his helmet put it over the uh over the grenade and his arms uh at least one was blowing off and he was a very severe man he has every right to be a very severe man. And he, I remember as a tiny kid, I first encountered him playing the trombone in the school orchestra, which he played really rigidly with his with his fake arm. And he was just a very severe human. He hit a lot of kids with his metal ruler. And he gave us our first sex ed class, which consisted largely of him trying to teach us how to, as he put, put a Johnny on it, lads. Which he had a ruler between his legs because he couldn't hold it with two arms. And with his one arm that did work, just tried to stick a, uh, a condom over it. He'd be like, just always remember, lad, stick a Johnny on it. Very angrily. <laughs> and that, was, we were and just that like, was it. We didn't know what it was and why and where the ruler, whatever that symbolized, was going. But no one, you didn't ask questions. There was How not, old were you? I would think um, when that happened, I was about 11, 11 or 12. And... Um, I mean, there was not a lot of conversation. My parents um, would not have conversed about any of this stuff. It was not discussed. I chatted a lot about it with my brother. I had an older brother, chatted a lot about it, and they talk about, you know, um, that we found a, a series of books that my dad, my parents had, uh, like many parents, The Joy of Sex is one. There was an amazing book called, <laughs> called Advanced... <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing what it was called. Um, it, I wrote about it in the book, and it's got it's something like sexual positions for advanced lovers. <laughs> and they just have black and white book plates of just incredible the helicopter <laughs> position. I'm still like thinking about that. And I just, wow, I, it was amazing. And then, and then and the art of sensual massage. I actually now owed the book. I, I, he stole it I stole, from his parents. <laughs> I stole it so I could get it right when I was writing and be- about it. And before you ask, no, he's never used the book. In my, in I don't house. know if it's that sensual by 2021 <laughs> status. It was it was it was shot in Berkeley, and I think it really worked. If you had a, I mean, there's a there was like a lot of wicker, a lot of wicker and terracotta in the photos. But the um, <laughs> little macrame. I wrote about it, so that that was a real source, mostly because I saw breasts, you know, in that for the first time, and and just I was able to instead of just sneaking looks in the locker room, be like, okay, okay, this is where we're headed. It was like almost like a. Those books, the art, the art of sensual massage, was almost like as if someone gave you a map of London. If you were, oh, so this is where we're going. Let's <laughs> uh, let's read it upon our destination. And then the other thing that uh, was deeply informative was pornography. Deeply, deeply informative in a totally retrospectively useless way. But you know, back in that day, it was a great currency to have. But it was nineteen seventies and. 80s pornography. I mean, it was di- magazines. Different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so How did ki- you get them? Kids listening, in the olden days, you'd buy these things called magazines. And like you, most kids had two or three. How do you, you got them was just by fluke. Like you'd be in a hotel 
um, in some city and you'd like, I remember one day doing a hotel and um, I don't know what made me do it. I lifted up the mattress at the oh hotel. My God. And I was just bored. And, oh my God, there was a Mac under the <laughs> <laughs> score. Amazing. So they just kind of came to you. You didn't find, I, I, once I persuaded my brother to go into a news agent. So there was a news agent that was known to sell them to kids. They were all on the top row of any newsstand. You could go into any newsstand in Liverpool and any newsstand in England totally normative and you you know you'd have your women woman and home magazine section you'd have your sports magazines your cinema your car aficionado and if you looked up there was just 100 porno mags all across the top so in plastic were they in no. plastic why would they be in plastic the ones here are in plastic i know so that's because that... it's 2020 <laughs> whatever it is no back then it was just like and you'd go in and you'd be like and you'd always you'd see like real men go in they'd always pick up like horse racing magazine and then reach quickly up and put the mag behind the so i'd send my brother in and he had two or three and it's uh, um, and you learn like the letters, like I, you memorize them. These letters, you studied these things. You'd swap them occasionally. There was one kid in class. I didn't put this in the book. It got edited out. But there's one kid in class whose dad ran the the um, the anti porn squad in an area of Liverpool, and he would just um, he would just bust porn illegal porn distributors, and then sell them on oh, <laughs> so his, son, oh, wow. his son his son would come in with just he'd sell he made a fortune he had a guy. treasure trove and the reason why it's so destructive is that uh, you know we talk now about the male gaze um when i think back to those magazines the the letters the narrative it was it wasn't the male gaze it was it was what male gaze times a thousand what you learn about women written in the voice of women. They were always bizarrely written in the letters. The stories were always written in the voice of women. And what it told you about women was like, was was just fantasy times a million. And it was just completely and utterly, uh, I mean, not like now. I mean, the difference now is that your kids with the internet can not just access porn, but they can find out that they're really interested in, in right. Turkish porn <laughs> with a tiny little dog watching <laughs> a large man and a whatever, you know, inhale balloons and then smoke cigarettes whilst doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, in those days, you took what you could get, but just the POV on it was was genuinely startling. Well, it's funny because, you know, I have this company and we make bras for tweens and teens. And from day one, we have committed to not showing images of girls who are modeling the bras from the front. And it's all to your point of the male gaze and not wanting to sort of recapitulate that. Well, girls have started to send us pictures, beautiful great, healthy, all these great, from the front. And they want to be able to post these pictures. And their point is, it's our narrative and we're writing the story and it's okay if we're writing the story as opposed to if someone is sort of assuming our voice, whether it's a man or or an adult woman or anyone else. And and I, I actually kind of love that about sort of taking ownership of your own story, it's right? Fantastic. It's fantastic. It's so, much more important that you take control of your own story than have your voice written by a 57-year-old man who lives outside of Manchester in a damp flat. Who's like just saying, hey, all women, lo- I love to do this like all women do. That was always all the time <laughs> that you use. And you're like, okay, making notes. Did anyone ever use the word puberty to you? Apart from you on our first date. <laughs> <laughs> 
Listen, uh, I just need to know how much do you know about puberty if this relationship is going to go forward? Yeah, we did have, we did have, we had a science teacher, an amazing science teacher, Mrs. Rowley, who would talk about puberty, but it didn't register. It wasn't like I never understood the specifics. I just knew I didn't have it. And, um, and, and everything that was connected to that meant I didn't have, and I lacked that, that status, that standing, that everything. And, um, so it was not really, it was, I mean, I, I detail it in fairly, um, truly microscopic detail in the, in the book, which I chose to do because, well, number one, the book, it came out of lockdown and me trying to retrace my steps. And from, you know, as America had the, had lockdown and the Black Lives Matter summer, that the agony and the trauma of it, and then into the election and I wanted to reconnect to times when America was a beacon of courage and joy and wonder. And so I really took myself back to that time and that place and that feeling. And then I did write, I lost myself to it. I mean, you watched, I wrote like a madman in a frenzy. And so it just all came out. Like I wrote everything. I felt everything again. And, um, and also I wanted our kids to, uh, to read it. I want our, I tried to, I'm encouraged by you in general, not in relation to this book, but for our kids to hear our truth and to read our experiences and to be vocal about it. I think as a parent, you often are not vulnerable and you are a, you know, your dad. And I thought there was something very healthy in putting it out there when the kids are ready to read it so that they could, they could read about our weaknesses as well as just our whatever the whatever the, the word strength is. As Gail King on CBS this morning like to focus on your tiny child penis that was a bald <laughs> spigot. God bless uh, Gail. Direct quote. Direct Amazing. quote direct, from the book and then via Gail King. So you know Gail. you know what you didn't have, right? You've you've revisited the land of Roger in the seventies and eighties and kind of the trauma of sitting on the eunuch bench in the, in the changing room. And now fast forward, you've written this book. We're raising four kids together. And a lot of the conversation we have with adults is about how do we do things differently? Who are we in this moment knowing who we were? Who do we want to be? Who do we want to make our kids? How can we do it differently? How can we do it better? And I'm wondering what are you doing differently? I mean, you talked about communication. I'm wondering, what are you conscious of doing differently as you raise your kids in this new country, in this new culture, and in all of these ways, so that they don't have that kind of trauma, hopefully? Um, I mean, my kids have American accents, for starters, which is endlessly hilarious to me. And there's not a morning I don't wake up and come down to the breakfast table and like, hey, dad. And I, it's like so funny and wonderful. I've like every morning I'm like, oh my God, I have American kids. It's really, it's, it's something that never, uh, that never fails to surprise and delight me. So the differences are just so profound. Um, I wouldn't say there's like one, I've taken one small strategy. I've taken everything and just did one little tweak to it. I mean, there, there is a, a the line at the end of the book. I mean, I, I did go through puberty, not to spoiler alert for the audience, <laughs> <laughs> but I did ultimately. I can attest to that. did ultimately <laughs> go through puberty and then it went a bit wild. Uh, you know, the Beastie Boys um, was faintly audible 
uh, license to ill album was faintly audible all over Britain and it cra- crashed right at the peak of my adolescence and our school which was an all boys school as an experiment suddenly let in 15 girls oh my god those girls is just uh, that it was such an ill thought out concept but we all went bonkers together and ultimately my father was quite strict and as everybody just went off the the world kind of went off its axis my dad actually yanked me back in a variety of different ways some quite disciplinarian to study and to focus and then at the end of the book I bizarrely did quite well at school which surprised me for a variety of different reasons and um the night that my results came out he was very very relieved and very very happy and he said something to me that I've not forgotten he said you need to know this was very hard for me too. He said, I hated every second of this past couple of years. But he said, I had to do it because I'm not your friend, I'm your father. And I do think about that often. It's like very common to try and be your kid's friend. Uh, you know, communication is really key, always being there, always deeply supportive. And that line between trying to understand your values, what you want to impart, And that, especially as they get older and they can actually withdraw, you can actually stop caring about the values and actually just start, and pandering isn't the right word, but like moving so, and I understand it urgently towards them that you forget what you're trying to, you just want that connection. And so there's there's things I actually do think about that I do carry through. And I think about that line and I think about my responsibilities as a a dad, uh, even within the, the context of, of of trying to be someone that communicates and deeply connects to the kids. He might not have been ahead of himself in sex ed, but that was very prescient to to say that. And and I think in the world of pediatrics, for sure, one of the biggest pieces of advice we give parents is to stop trying to be your child's friend. First of all, they don't want you to be their friend; they want you to be a parent. And doesn't mean you can't have. I mean, I've I've watched so so. Samson was an intern for my company. And um, we were brainstorming articles for the the puberty portal. And these were articles that were incredibly intense topics. And Vanessa was on a Zoom and it was Samson and Vanessa and my daughter, Talia, and then a handful of other teenagers, early 20-somethings. And Samson could speak so articulately and so like a peer with Vanessa. He was so honest and so raw, and yet he didn't see her as his friend. He respected her as his mother, and he knew she respected him as her son. And yet it was a very free-flowing conversation. So whatever whatever your dad gave you in that line, you guys have done, I can just tell you. And for <laughs> any parents who are listening, it is a pearl it's really an important one to take, which is they, they want someone to keep them safe and healthy. That's what they want. I mean, one of the things, Raj, that you've taught me, particularly because we have three boys and one girl, particularly with the boys who are 18 and 15, is, you know, my temptation is to just go deep every time, to ask every possible question I can and hope for... She, did, m- she does that with me too. <laughs> <laughs> But what you've taught me is, you know, if you get one question answered, see that as a success and get out and get out quickly. And 
there's a couple things I really appreciate about that. One is an understanding of what it feels like to be a teenage boy, which Cara and I have never experienced. And so we're sort of trying our best and mostly screwing it up. Um, but two, also measuring parenting teenage boys as a kind of a long game and building trust and respect by not interrogating them and not sort of forcing them to answer a myriad of questions, but just making a connection and and getting out of the conversation. And I really learned, I don't always put it into practice. In fact, I probably rarely put it into practice, but that doesn't mean I don't have the intention of eventually putting it into practice. And it's really the way you respect their privacy while still connecting to them as a really beautiful is a really beautiful thing and something that I think they really appreciate. There's a part of the book where when I start going out to pubs and clubs in Liverpool when I'm about 15, you know, going out with my grandfather's identification <laughs> card. So if we were carded, I'd show the bouncer that I was a 73-year-old kosher butcher named Sam Pollock. And so I'd go out and the first night I went out, my brother took me, I actually ran into him in the city. I was out and he goes, whatever. He gave me the advice. He goes, whatever. Mum and dad ask you in the morning about what the night was like. You know, I was going to one of the one of the like most actively, slightly insane clubs in Liverpool at the time that Frankie goes to Hollywood would shoot their videos. I was going to the pub beforehand that was uh, hilariously simmering. He's like, when mum and dad ask you what you did last night, just say to them, we went to the cinema. It was great. And that was, you know, in the morning, we'd uh, sit at the breakfast table, hung over, and my dad, what do you do last night? And we'd be like, went to the cinema. It was great. And he'd be like, what about you, Nigel? Cinema too. Also good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I do think that whatever you get out of your kid is great. And if you push too far, you won't get it next time. And so I'm always like one in one question and then just get out and, and let them do their own version of we went to the cinema. Vanessa always asks people when we're talking about their puberty journeys, she often asks, okay, if there was someone who could have come in and said something or done something that might have changed the trajectory, what would that have been? So is there a way that someone could have come in to you in Liverpool as a super late bloomer in your linen pants with your grandfather's ID. <laughs> I got the whole, the whole thing happening in my head. Yeah, I, I, when I look back on it, I thought a lot about it on the walk down here. And the reality is, there's a lot that's come out of it for me. Like I'm not a very, I don't think a lot about physical. I mean, when I came to Chicago for the first time when I was 15, 16, I spent the summer on the beach. In, no, you went to the cinema. <laughs> yeah, I went. To, I, I, I ended it was up, great. I went. I, I ended up going to Chicago for a summer, which changed my life on the North Shore and Glencoe and Highland Park around there, where John Hughes shot all of his movies. I, I spent a summer there. It was like I'd gone through the Looking Glass and was the star of my own John Hughes movie. You know, it amazed me the comfort that these American kids had with their bodies, just like the way they walk around. Uh, I mean, remember we were, it was even in the bloody summer, it was most often raining and freezing and damp. I, mean, I got off the plane and the heater, so, I couldn't believe you could sustain life with that. I thought it was the propellers cooling down. And then when I realized it wasn't, I panicked. I was like, my lungs need dampness. Where am I going to find dampness here? <laughs> so I got to the beach 
where I spent most of the summer. And I was just amazed by these kids, just so at ease with their bodies. It was remarkable the way they could slash through the waves with this, with these incredible. Don't know where the hell you train them. I was like doggy paddling. After them. <laughs> um, I think that was the last time you went swimming. I hate water. I don't do water, <laughs> but the the. I realized also, I don't think a lot about physical stuff. You know, I um, once I'd gone to puberty, once it happened, once, wow, I could look down and just, I was in. <laughs> the trauma just went away. It was like, it was, it was done. I was like, okay, we're doing this. You know, still, Off the to, bench. still to this day, my arms are not very hairy. You know, I went away to, uh, started to travel Europe, hitchhike around Europe when I was like 17, 18. And you run into America. I remember meeting a ton of Americans and being mouthy and funny and everyone, you know, I remember, um, you know, connecting to, there was a lot of women. I was like, connect. I remember one of the Americans going, uh, going, look at that kid. He's not even got hair on his legs and everybody wants to get with him. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I was like, oh, I looked down, I was like, oh my God, my legs are not that hairy. I wasn't shaving um, that often when I was 70. I never, none of that bothered me. I couldn't give two craps uh, it's just like i am who i like and my arms are hilarious my samson is six foot three six mm -hmm. foot four massive enormous kid still has my arms he finds it hilarious he's like dad got your arms and in none of that bothered me as soon as it happened i lost like i the physical zone just stopped i, I was in it was done box ticked and it was like the 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 physical limitations i was still small i was still you know still I didn't have any real sense of self. I had no knowledge what I looked like, whether I was good looking or not. It was all person. Everything, 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 everything from that moment on was just personality and character rather than physical. Uh, and by that stuff. moment, you mean a adult sized penis? The whole, the whole enchilada, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, 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 to be candid, just the first sight of, of any hair at all. I was just like, won the World Cup. Let's go. <laughs> we did it. We did it. One pubic hair. Yeah. I'm in. I'm, no, by the way, I can remember that moment. I remember. And I tried to write it into the book. Just that, you know, I spent a lot of time, a lot of time, because you had to shower after the games. They made you shower. The teachers patrolled and made you shower with cricket bats whacking everyone on the earth. And I, I just decided I was not going to shower. I couldn't. You came in, you were freezing, you were soaked, you had muddy legs, caked in mud. And to not shower was equivalent, I don't like to be hyperbolic, but breaking out of a prisoner of war camp in the Second World War, like they had teachers were on you, there were searchlights everywhere, they were getting you in that bloody shower, I was not going in that shower anymore, it was miserable in there and they made all the kids who didn't have gone to puberty shower in the cold shower, they'd laugh at you, it was awful. So I just pulled on my pants and like ran for it. Um, and I remember going home in my muddy-legged uh, pants and then I'd spend hours like, with the light trying to persuade myself that I could see the first hair or whatever. But once it happened, once it happened, and it, by the way, once it happened, it wasn't like everything happened overnight, but once I got visible something, I was genuinely, it was like liberated. Mm. I was, it, was, it wasn't then the true, I wasn't then looking at my arms and wondering where are the hairs, my legs. Once it was done, the once that was done, I was just like, so Clunk. once you started, you were like, okay, I'm... Everest has been climbed. <laughs> so here's what's interesting, because when I first met you, you'd come, we'd go back to Liverpool and I have the best mother-in-law in the world and she would tell me stories about Roger. Shout out to Val. Shout out to Valerie Bennett, world's best mother-in-law. And she would say, you know, he would come home with his muddy pants, 
And they put them back on the next morning and it was so disgusting. And the reality is she didn't know why you'd come home with muddy pants. She didn't know the fear, the shame, the embarrassment, the otherness that you were feeling. She just thought, oh, he's just gross. He's just a mess. He's just all over the place. When really there's those muddy pants are symbolic of some really big stuff for you at that time. Yeah, God love. And I think my mum would probably prefer to think it was just grubby fat legs. <laughs> <laughs> she probably would like to know that it's just, it was just grubby legs, mum. It was, it was, it was. Yeah, I mean, there's always something deeper. But um, but that, that thinking this through, I realised it was just genuinely like a switch that was flipped. It was like being liberated. It was... Um, like I never worried about. I never worried how tall would I be. How would I? By the way, Carrie said I would do it. Would I have? Would I keep my hair? I'd never given a crap about any. And it would I have. Like I, when I first met American kids properly, properly, um, spent like live with them. I came over to be the weird, creepy counselor. <laughs> the <laughs> weird the, English counselor with black socks and uh, jean shorts. Yeah, all the works, man. Don't take away my <laughs> my um my jorts. The um. <laughs> So they're back. They have, thank God. Some some would say they never went away. <laughs> so I was the creepy English counselor, and I remember arriving just with my backpack with like two pairs of jorts cut down, five at one, super cool. I had a uh, like one pair of sneakers and a couple of t-shirts, whatevs. And I arrived with um, with the to meet the American counselors at some Greyhound bus stop in uh, Maine, where we're all being picked up. And they arrive with trunks and trunks and trunks of stuff. And I just had my little backpack. I was like, all right, lads, <laughs> what's in the trunks? And first of all, I mean, God, Nike Airs had just come out and they all had about 87 pairs of Nike Airs to wear of every outfit, which was hilarious and fascinating. And then number two, each of them had um, a trunk just filled with weights. And we all shared a bunk for the first tra- the training uh, for the first week uh, before the kids came. And just the boys' bunk was just, I'd never, it was not part of English culture at that time. I and mean, Olivia Newton-John, let's get physical, had not yet come out, I don't think. And to watch these guys, they, they were actually working each other out by what they could lift and how they did it and the pecs and the everything. I didn't even know I had pecs. You know, they build my lats and work on my lats. I'd be like, do I have lats? guys. <laughs> and um, it just never occurred to me. And I watched them all both try to impress each other and build their own hierarchy. I was just never part of that. Like, I, I never participated in that and just didn't fit into anything because who gave a crap? It's so is the, is the secret to that? your temperament and who you are? Is it having grown up at a time and in a place where it just wasn't discussed? Is it that you were a late bloomer and that you were, you know, arguably just working through and getting by day to day until I I love you actually used the word we when you saw the first sign of development you said we did it like you and your body (laughs) together (laughs) you and your micro penis (laughs) amazing but you know what's what because I think people who are listening to this one thing that they may be asking themselves I know I'm asking myself is how can I raise a kid who has that sense of priority, that lens on life, right? That's It's a really very healthy lens to let all the superficial go and really just it's, it's about the person underneath. So, you know, go. How do people 
do that? I, I honestly don't know. That's just a natural. I, I read a lot. So character was always important because I was obsessed with character. I'd watched a lot of movies as a kid. Character, again, was personality was really important. And I do, I shuffled through the archetypes, the stereotypes, the characters that appealed to me when I was a kid in the book. I mean, the book is a lot. I tried to really mine who I saw um, and how I adapted my life to try and be like them. And it, well, there is a progression. I, I, I tried to be Don Johnson and I write in depth about what that was like going on a date, dressing myself up in Liverpool um like don johnson looking dangerous and then i went to meet the girl at the cinema i think it was about 13 14 and i just remember she like she was tilting she had a haircut with this special waterfall bangs which looked amazing but it meant she had to just tilt her head the whole time <laughs> and, <give it> tilted. <laughs> and so i said i said to her i got there and i was like oh you look amazing she had her head tilted. She, goes, she goes um yeah you look uh you look interesting and so like the, the Don Johnson thing was a bit of a disaster. I learned like chiseled cheekbones. You can't just will them into existence. <laughs> um, and it was great for him, but it, it was just not my approach to life. And then I moved through the John Hughes movies. I, mean, I think a lot of men who listen to your podcast, some of them will have like, the Duckman seems so cut, but my God, none of those movies have aged well. But when you watch them again, the Duckman who was a deeply repressed, pretty repulsive human being, actually, when you actually watch it with today's eyes. But he, he tried to be, I'm quirky, I'm a full, I'm, I'm a character, I'm going to repress my, my uh, love. Like, a, a lot, when you watch that, it was kind of cool. It reflected who you were. You had a lot of feelings that you wanted to get out. But, you know, as long as you were once the duck man, always the duck man, as long as you were wearing offbeat shoes, you could get through stuff. And I realized the duck man was just the wrong way to, like I did think about the Duckman for about probably, a, I'd say now a month, but it's probably much longer in reality. And it was Bruce Willis on Moonlighting, a show that's not really discussed that much anymore, but it was groundbreaking in its day. He played a character, David Addison, who was scruffy, was a human mess, um, was not successful, but he did everything. He did it with his mouth. It was like Run DMC, the first time I saw them, the same. He, he was... He was like, he had a mouth that was a hydrant and he just said hilarious things and it got him out of trouble. It got him what he needed, when he needed it, saved his life on many occasions and eventually won him friends and the object of his affection. And that proactive, that uh, not repressed, just saying things like talking about things, making them real, found that incredible. Run DMC, the same, these guys who just spat rhymes, spat boasts, and then went after making the real. I found that really a fascinating archetype to follow. And so a lot of it was about character. And then there's clearly some of it that you will encounter with your patients and you'll be able to tell me afterwards. It's just utterly, it's natural. I don't exist on the physical plane. I do, I do, I like character. I like value. Um, I like that the, the people I like are have a have a certain set of, of uh, approach to engage in the world, and I think I think beauty is 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 on the inside as much as it is the outside, and um, so that's what I tell my kids. So, babe, <laughs> yeah. at the end of every puberty podcast, we ask our guest for a practical piece of puberty advice. You're asking me. I know it's a little. It's, it's a big mistake. But... It's um. I mean, I know we do this at the end of every dinner at home. I turn to you and say, Raj, give me a piece of practical puberty advice. But let's pretend 
for now that, that we were don't do that at that, your house. <laughs> <laughs> and really what we're asking for is how does your story, does your experience inform not just your current life as a as an adult, but also how can that story help other people have empathy, compassion, understanding for the kids they're caring for? And you can go last if you want. Cara and I also share a practical piece of advice based on the conversation, but I would love to hear from you. What is that? What, when people walk away from this episode and they've listened to you laugh and cry and share really personal stuff, what do you want them to know as they go home to their, to their families and, and take care of their own kids? I think share really personal stuff. It's really healthy to talk to your kids about uh, ultimately puberty. The processes can be a great one. And um, I mean, the values that I think are really important in life. I mean, I'm thinking about your last question too. It's like, I, I carry through not just the non-physical stuff, but I also love to encourage the kids to be deeply mediocre and to focus not on like accolades and trying to get into Yale with all of their heart and mind, but to focus on their own character, how they're building up their own character, who they are, how they communicate, how they carry themselves in the world. And so to try and model that, the two things I think are important in life are empathy and tenacity. I think those are deeply important values and bizarrely a lot of my own work even though i'm covering sports is really going back to those two themes empathy and tenacity over and over and over again and so in the process as a father really i've tried to usher them through so they emerge from it the boys in particular with empathy uh, and tenacity and but i've done that by communicating my own pain and to be honest about it and to, to show them that, uh, really to laugh at my own my own predicament, I gave a really early chapter. In fact, our second son was the first person to read anything. I gave him the chapter, the puberty chapter. He was really um, in, need of, in need of a laugh, really. And I just gave it to him and he read it, which was a miracle that he read something amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and then we talked about it and laughed at it and everyone's I mean it's so bloody universal and funny the book that I wrote I found everything in it it's so particular and it's such a singular story like I'm a guy that grew up with a statue of liberty on my painted on my bedroom wall in the skyline of Manhattan and I ended up actually living there I dreamt of it and I made that dream real that's pretty singular but like, I've had so many bloody Americans be like oh my god you dreamt of like living in Chicago I grew up in LA and dreamt I would have given my arm to live in Manchester because I love the Smiths and that urge to reinvent yourself that urge to be what you're not to live, by the way, everyone who's listening in America, you dodged a bullet not living outside of Manchester. <laughs> but but that those urges are deeply universal and to, to, to communicate those things. And then the last thing I'll say is that um, you've got to talk about all of it with them. And the funniest part of doing it was with Samson, our oldest, when uh, you know, I talked earlier about how I was taught to put a condom on. Uh, by my teacher with one arm shoving a metal ruler between his legs and just struggling to put a condom over the metal ruler and go, boys, put a jolly on it. And so when it came to Samson's turn to start going out to the movies, quote, every weekend, Ness is like, you've got to teach him. You've got to teach him to put a condom on. And I was like, okay, okay. And I did think about doing the metal ruler thing. But I I told him, got him into my bedroom, about 
a big pack of condoms. And I was like, son, um, I'm going to show you how to, um, how to use this. And he's like, okay. I said, I'm going to get my knob out and show you how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, dad! And I was like, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm going to do it on your knob. You get your knob out, <laughs> He's like, dad! Uh, um, and then I pulled the banana out from between the bed sheets. I was like, okay, I'm joking. Let's do it. Um, I came home that night and there was like, a mangled spermicidal mm. banana on the kitchen <laughs> counter. I was like, you couldn't throw it out or peel it and eat it. You had to just leave it on the counter. That's the name of my next book, The Mangled Spermicide <laughs> Banana. It's better than Roger the Bennett. tiny spigot child penis. It's <laughs> evidence that the lesson was learned. So share the stories. Tell the good and the bad. Kara, what's yours? What I took from this conversation was so much around character. And part of it is that we've really spent a lot of time in the last few days together and your character, Roger, is, is so unique and, and fills a room in all the best ways. Uh, it's very, very different from most people who I've come across. And I knew I liked Vanessa from the minute I met her and now I I sort of, I know, now I know why. Um, <laughs> she just, um, you, you know, I don't, I don't know who's the better half. It's really, it's a really great combo. But I say that because your comments about character are very, very moving. And I think the pearl that I'm taking from this is that in order to build our kids' characters, that we talk to them and we engage them in conversation. And if that's not working, then we just put them in front of a television and let them start watching and let them start. I mean, maybe it's heart to heart and, you know, and all of those great shows that you outline in the book. And maybe it's just that they find the characters they resonate with. And uh, so screen time, just that's what I took from this. Just not the duck man. Just not, not the, duck, the man. duck man. So I guess I'll close with my less practical puberty advice, although I guess it's fairly practical, which is that all of us are imperfect parents and we all had imperfect parents, but there are still really beautiful, meaningful things that we can learn from our parents and our kids can learn from us, even in our imperfectness. And I think your dad's message that he's not your friend and that sometimes doing the right thing by your kids is hard and painful and not fun at all, but serves them in the long term. And as parents, it's a real struggle to do that, but it's so important for our kids to be their parents and not their friends. And I will say that I am so lucky to get to parent with you. And I'm so lucky to have watched you write this book and put it in the world because it's beautiful and meaningful and honest and I think very life-affirming for people in all of the ways that you share your most honest and deepest truths and stories. So thank you for writing it for our kids and for everybody else out there who feels other and alone and different. Thank you, babe. <laughs> I love you. I love Cara too. Oh, I love you too. <laughs> I don't want Cara to feel left out. By the way, you guys are an amazing partnership. It's really lovely to be with you. So thank you. Thank you. I feel pretty lucky to have both of you as my partners in different ways. 
Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com